So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage, and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts. And also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Out there in archaeology podcast land, this is Dr. Alan Garfinkel for episode 106. We're going to have Helena Matorg coming in from Spain. She goes by Elena Mateos on the internet. She is a PhD, a doctorate in rock art and the rock art of Mexico in the jungle, talking about the connection between the natural world and the supernatural world. She is such a resource and so exciting. You don't want to miss this one, gang. Hey, out there in rock art uh, podcast, archaeology podcast land, this is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, and we are blessed and honored to have a uh, astounding young woman. Her name is Dr. Helena Matorg. Uh, am I pronouncing that right, uh, Elena? Well, yeah, my, my real name is Elena Mateos, uh, but I Mateos. go by Elena Matorg in every social media. <laughs> so whatever. Oh, that's, that, that's nice. And Elena is coming to us from Spain, and uh, she'll be talking about her exciting adventures in, in rock art research in the uh, Mexican jungle, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So this is an exciting adventure for us. We've had a number of individuals from all over the world over the course of the, I think this is number 106 for us in terms of our episodes, but uh, I always get excited when we have a chance to speak to some of our international colleagues. And after reading a short bio on Elena, I think this is going to be a phenomenally interesting adventure. The way we usually kick this off, Elena, is we let you talk a bit about 
your bio, your background, how did you ever get involved in the study of archaeology, Native Americans and rock art? Well, long story short, I was living in Madrid and I was working and studying at the same time. I was 23 years old. Honestly, I was tired. So I got a scholarship for Mexico in which I was going to be able just to study for the first time in my life. And so I went there and I discovered the National Autonomous University in Mexico. I was stunned by it. I fell in love with the country, the people, landscapes, everything. As a mountain lover and a rock art lover, I had always wanted to study rock art. So I started asking around, you know, and even though my internship was going to last six months only, uh, it was during my bachelor degrees, I ended up being in Mexico for 11 years. Oh, um, my word. Yeah. <laughs> where, where, where is that National Autonomous University located? Uh, in Mexico City. It is in Mexico City. Okay. Very mm -hmm. nice. Do they have a very active program in the study of rock art or is that unusual? Because I know all over the world, it's a little bit different from place to place. I couldn't say it's unusual, but maybe in all my program, in the history program during my master's degree, I was the only thesis dedicated to rock art. Okay. And yeah, and during my doctorate degree, I will say that we were two people, maybe three. I'm not sure, but no, it's not so common, I would say. Not so common. And, mm -hmm. and your background is also in art history, isn't it? Yes. My bachelor's degree is in art history. So maybe that is why I'm so focused or I'm an iconography lover. <laughs> well, that's, that's absolutely wonderful. I, I think that I don't have a background in art history, but I have a, a passion for the understanding of religion and also for the understanding of, as you were saying, the relationship between the natural world and let's say the supernatural world or the world of the celestial or divine kingdom, seeing the way that things connect and how that preliterate people viewed the natural environment as sentient, as alive and having agency, which is rather remarkable. And I know that for a time, I'd say that the, the, the West was rather skeptical of that view. But I think what's happening is physicists and other scientists are coming to an understanding that there is a deep and abiding and scientific basis for that understanding. Do you agree? Yeah, that is totally what I hope I get to do in my, during my doctoral thesis, because I prepare an iconographical analysis thoroughly. And mm -hmm. through that investigation, a quality investigation and quantity investigation, I came up with a solution for the answer. Why? Why? Why, right. do, why did they paint, you know? And I think that this is what you have just mentioned is crucial to my investigation and to my heart. It's very close to my heart, honestly. So, so tell us where your, your research was conducted. You said there, there's a particular mountain range or a part of the jungle that attracted you, correct? Back in 2009, when I first started a place located in the area of the Popocatépetl mountain, it's a huge volcano close to Mexico City. Okay. It's 5,600 meters high over the sea level. I don't know. Oh, my feet. I think it's... Oh, no, that, that, that's about... <laughs> That if you times each meter is about three feet, so we're we're talking about fifteen thousand feet. 
Yeah, it's a which pretty is, huge which is mountain. Huge. <laughs> that's, that's huge, huge. That is okay. huge. And not only is it is it huge, it's also amazing because it's Popocatépetl means the mountain that has smoke, you know? So it can yes. be seen from everywhere. It's an active volcano. So I fell in love with that mountain. I, the first time wow. I ever saw that, I cried, honestly. That was my experience. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to study rock art that, that was close to the mountain. So I first studied a place called Tezcal Pintado. Tezcal is Nahuatl and means like rock wall. Um, Pintado is Spanish and it means painted. So it could mean like painted rock wall. In that place, I discovered a shelter, a rock shelter with more than a hundred uh, motifs, all painting, uh, painted in white from the post-classic period. And I conducted that research based on iconography and the relationship between the paintings and the ceremonies that were present in some codex, calendarical codex. Yeah. So that was my first approach. <laughs> what would those have dated to? Because for, for those that don't, don't understand the chronology for Mesoamerica. Oh, yeah. From the post-classic period, uh, we're talking about around the thousand Anus Day AD to maybe when the, Spani the Spaniards uh, went to Mexico. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that was a, the, one, of the, one of the last prehistoric periods, correct? Well, it's not totally prehistoric because they did have no, because, codes. That's right. Yeah. yeah. That's right. They that's right. They, they, mm -hmm. they had the writing. Now, yes. are the codices translated per se or they're interpreted, correct? Well, we have some different codex. We have pre-Hispanic codex that were interpreted or explained to the monks at some point, you oh, know. So I, there are I notations. See. Yeah, there are notations in some codex and they are very helpful when it comes to understanding mm -hmm. the relationship with the deities and the underworld and everything. So I think that through the analysis of paintings, the analysis of motifs and through the interpretations that very intelligent authors like Edward Seller made at the beginning of the 20th yes, century. Yes. We, we can uh, understand a lot, a lot of, of iconography. And the rock art is uh, not very rich in iconography, uh, surprisingly, but it's very precise. And it's always related to the gods of the water, the gods of the mountains, and everything that keeps things going on, you know, raining happening, uh, life happening. So, yeah, very interesting. So in the images that were white, mm -hmm. what what were the depictions of? Were they did they mirror the uh, elements of a codices, or were they more enigmatic in terms of having uh, various elements or uh, animal human figures? Which was it? Okay, now we are talking about Tezcal Pintado, which is my first investigation in the master's degree. Right. During the master's right. degree. And in that place, they all resemble codex. Yeah, we have deities, we have human figures, we have wow. processions and elements of ritual elements, you know, people doing things together. And we also have a lot of moons, which could be interpreted as the stars and suns. Yeah. So you, you could almost read the rock art in that way, could you not or no? Oh, I felt I felt that I could. Maybe I was mistaken, but yeah, I totally could. Yeah, yeah, but, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah but of I, course. <laughs> but, but because it was so rich and so codified, mm -hmm. they talk about some of the rock art that I work with is, is far more enigmatic and mysterious yes. and difficult to understand. And you don't have historical, you don't have historical notes to 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 no, go for no. and to to consult. Yeah, your system. Yes, so sorry, yeah. but you have the history and plus the codices. And in this case, in this case, we are lucky. And were these related to the Aztec people, the Nahuatl? Yeah, Nahuatl culture. Yeah, it was created by them. Maybe not the Aztec because the Aztecs were 
like a small tribe that belonged to that huge Nahuatl culture. But right. yeah, some some other groups that were living in that area. Um, yep. So that was what, my master's investigation and my first yeah. approach to Mexican rock art. And then I went crazy or went bananas, I think you say in your language. And what did you conclude in your master's investigation about that particular site? Well, I thought I came to the conclusion that the rock art was related with some ceremonial parties that can be traced on codexes and mostly related to the deities of the water and to thank the death for the maintenance of life in the real world, you know, in the human world. So very, a very, very clearly a metaphor, almost like a visual prayer, as I put it, a, a prayer. Th- that, that is perfectly, yeah, described. Yeah, 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 perfect. That's right. And it had to do with water and it had to do with life and it had to do with, I presume, death as well. Yeah, because, you know, in, in Mexican cultures, in Nahuatl culture, they believe that water was creating in the center of, inside of the mountains. They were, the mountains were containers for water. And inside of those mountains, the death will go and they will become the masters of life somehow. They could push life out to the mountains, you know. For example, if, if you were hit by um, lightning during a storm. Yes. You will die and then you yes. will become a Tlaloque, which is a, a server of the god Tlaloc, and you will ride the, the, the clouds so the rain could reach re- different regions of the, of the area. So, yeah, that is very beautiful. The relationship between life and death is so beautiful. I, I, I'm in love with that. It's very different from our com- Cosmovision. <laughs> right. What elevation or was that particular cave, that rock shelter that you studied there on that mountain? The first one for your, for your master's, thesis, master's thesis. It was in a place called Weyapan. It's very close to the Popocatépetl Volcano. Uh-huh. And it was situated in a canyon, sorry. In a canyon, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Canyon. So after you did your master's thesis, and what, what about what year was that? Do you remember? 2011, well, it was 12 years ago. I came back to Spain. Yeah, Yeah, I came back to Spain and tried to find a job here. Didn't succeed. Uh So I went back to Mexico and (laughs) and studied my PhD degree. Uh Yeah, I was accepted in the National Autonomous University again. And that was a a gift, of course. Great. And so then you began your PhD research. Yeah, I, I began in 2013. I see. Let's hold it there. That'll be the first segment of the three segment interview Mm -hmm. during the next segment we'll move along and find out about your phd uh, efforts see you on the flip-flop gang thanks you've worked hard for what you have your money your assets your 401k and home isn't it all worth protecting nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft lifelock ultimate plus helps protect your finances with up to three million dollars in reimbursement LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. 
source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Welcome back, gang. We're here at the uh, Archaeology Podcast Network. We're doing the Rock Art Podcast, and we're with Dr. Elena, soon to be, and she's going to talk about her PhD dissertation research. Elena, kick it off. Okay. <laughs> so after having finished my master's degree, I decided that it was high time. It was investigating a vast area, you know, because when you focus on only one shelter, you don't see the whole picture. So I decided that it was going to start in a place called Tepoztlan, which is situated about 60 kilometers, 70 kilometers far from Mexico City, southeast so in the state of Morelos. And I decided that, that because during my previous investigation, I had seen the mountains of Tepoztlan and I thought, oh, those mountains look pretty special to me. So there must be rock art in there, you know. So I went there and I did discover several places and I thought I was going to find more Little did I know that I was going to find more than 30 places in those mountains. Wow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that had, hadn't been previously recorded. Well, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and how did those places differ from your masters? Were they also similar or were they very different? Some of them are very similar, whereas others are very different. This is very interesting. Please. I found that I, I am there and I find that there are a lot of places. Tell us a bit about these images. Yeah, there are many different types of places, you know. I found places from different periods of time, different magnitude, different height, different size, you know. And mm -hmm. I find places, so I need to come up with a solution for that. So I realized that there are some different places. I call one of them locals, which are the places in which the motifs are very small, about 20 centimeters, 30 centimeters as much. The human figure is hardly ever represented, whereas there are other places, big. And I, when I say big, I mean like six, seven meters, like the Scalpintado bigs. And wow. in those, the human figure is really important. They reach the matter, you know, in size. And there are a lot of motifs. And more importantly, there are many periods of time in which those places were repainted and painted and painted again. So I would say that there are two main different types of places, local and the ones that I called monumental places. I see. So, mm -hmm. Now, did both of those, were they more abstract or were they more realistic? Were they easier to read or more difficult to read? I, I would say that it depends on the period of time ah. they come from. So in order to be able to determine the period of time that the, in which the art was created, mm -hmm. I came to other places that were in the area. For example, Chalcatzingo. Chalcatzingo is a very important archaeological site that has been studied over the time by many super amazing investigators like Michael Smith, uh, Alex Apostolides, or now it is being investigated by Julio Amador. I don't know mm -hmm. if you know him. Name's, name is familiar, by the way, yeah. Oh, his work in rock art is, is amazing, honestly. I totally admire his work. So he 
in Chalcatzingo, there are some other archaeological things that can be traced back in time. So I took from Chalcatzingo some of the motives in order to give a period of time or a chronology to the vast amount of different types, styles, and motives that I discovered in my area. So that is what I did, because it, depending on the period of time in which the art was created, the iconography varies a lot, and the type of motives are very different. And what did you conclude from your research in terms of the function of these sites or their ages and the uh, character of what they're trying to communicate? Oh, that is a very beautiful question because I think that only when you are related with the mountains and nature, you are able to to really understand how important water it is, you know. So what I realized is that it didn't matter whether the places were big, monumental or locals. The most, most important thing that they were related to were either a cavity in the walls, a source of water, either seasonal or perennial. For example, in the local small places, you will find cannons, dogs, moons, and stars, mostly. Those are the most represented motives. But they are always really close to a source of water, really close to them. So when you are walking in the mountains and you are thirsty and it is hot and you find this perennial water, of course, you want to, to for this place to be visited by the gods that are allowing that water to exist in that place. In my opinion, the selection of the places was not based on the quality of the rock, for example, which <laughs> is mostly hard and horrible rock to paint in. It's not, you know, a plain wall. But they were selected based on that, on the presence of water or cavities. Because in the Mexican Nahuatl religion, it was thought that cavities allow people to communicate with the underworld that I mentioned before. So you could ask them to be there and to bring more water. So these cavities are what we might call portals, portals and yes. connections, tethers, conduits to another world. And this mm -hmm. was a means of connecting to the supernatural beings, correct? Yeah, it's totally correct. Even today, there are los tiemperos. Los tiemperos, for example, are ritual specialists that go to those cavities and leave an offering so that the rain is going to come. Wow. In, for example, in another, yeah, and this is done every year in El Popocatépetl Vulcano, in Tepoztlán, in other places, and in San Andrés de la Cal, which is a town in Tepoztlán, in the municipality of Tepoztlán, yeah. they do the Aires representation, is like the wind, the winds, the winds, the winds, the winds, uh, the winds. rituals, yes, because they do believe that in the cavities, the cavities, you can find winds that have power, good or evil. So every year they bring offering to those winds in the cavities. Are there any ceremonies or dances or other things that are done in the nearby cities or towns that relate to these particular powers or deities or, or associations? Yeah, I would say that when they bless the, the seed, they go to the mountains. For example, in Tepoztlán, there is a very particular mountain called Tlacatepetl, which means the mountain of the men or the hill of the men. Okay. And in the, in the neighborhood of Santa Cruz, they believe that the Tlacatepetl is a person, has personality, and the, that mountain or is taking care of the neighborhood. 
So every year, again in May, it is the same period of time for all May. the ceremonies. When when the rain is about to come, they bless the seeds. The but seeds. before doing that, they climb the mountain and they dress a cross. You know, and decorate the cross with flowers and there are a lot of dances. There are for days and days they dance and they conduct a ceremony in the barrio, in el barrio de la Santa Cruz. Yeah, it's a very beautiful ceremony. It, it used to be my neighborhood. So uh, <laughs> I enjoy that. Is that a syncretic phenomenon? So that they're, they're joining the native ideology with Catholicism because of the cross or, or not? Well, the yes. cross is, is, is present in the pre-Hispanic religion as well. So okay. I, I don't know what comes first, if a reinterpretation of the cross maybe, or maybe they are using cross uh, different interpretations or different meanings for that. But of course, the religion is present. The church in every neighborhood has a church and the church conducts a lot of ceremonies and everything is around is done around the church. So it's like the temple, you know. Yeah, so I, I do think that there are uh, many things that have been integrated together in terms of Nahuatl religion and Catholic religion, of course. That's, that's very fascinating to me. I'm Catholic and mm -hmm. I've been uh, studying Mesoamerican religion. In fact, we have a book coming out that just came out this month and it's about the uh, iconicity of the Uto Aztecans, you know, sort of reconstructing it from its beginnings and 4,000, 5,000 years ago and moving from Eastern California to the American Southwest into the high cultures of Mexico. And we look at it through uh, symbolism, uh, specifically emphasizing the role of the serpent vis-a-vis -vis, uh, how that is depicted and used as a conduit for uh, life, regeneration, and water. And do you have a serpent with horns? In the American Southwest, yes. In the American okay. Southwest, they have a, a serpent that has horns. The serpent that uh, we have in Eastern California uh -huh. is decorated with quail plumes. Quail plumes. Oh, my. Like it's yes. a quadl. Right, right. It's sort of a headpiece. And you would probably be tickled to read a bit about what we've done. And uh, I'll be happy to send you a copy of the book. And then we have another one relating to this animal human figures. It's surprising, more than surprising, it's it's gobsmacking, if you want to use that word, mm -hmm. that I'm in Bakersfield right now, which is in the bottom of the Southern San Joaquin Valley in, in uh, what you might call Southern California. I'm mm -hmm. only an hour or two away from the Western Mojave Desert. There's an area there called Coso. And uh, I've been visiting it for about 50 years. And, it, and in a canyon there, the major canyon that's available to public visitation, there is a uh, panel, a picture uh -huh. of what we feel is a communication, a storyboard of the creation of the world to um, the ancient Udo Aztecans. It's similar to the creation story among the Huichol and also amongst the Aztecs or the Nahuatl. Oh it has to do with uh, the four pilgrims and the the uh, uh, lunar goddess. And, uh, the caves. You have a lunar goddess ah, okay, and, okay, okay. and the um, individuals who are going to the, the mountain 
to create the sun. The story goes that they do that when sacrifices themselves. And after they do that, the, the sun is not tethered high enough in the sky. And they've got to push up the sky. So there's a depiction of these four or five individuals pushing up clouds. And they form a cloud serpent, if you will, or rain. Again, rain. But that's all on this small sort of triangular boulder uh-huh. there in Little Petroglyph Canyon. Now, that is amazing. That same creation story is also in southern Texas in a huge uh, panel, a painting that's done by Carolyn Boyd. It's a book on the White Shaman Cave. And she is the one that sort of inspired me to begin to understand Mesoamerican theology and cosmology. And I've been publishing with um, a gentleman who teaches at Guanajuato University. Mm-hmm. His name is Tirtha Muka Abadai. He has uh, written a couple of articles and now this, you know, 70,000 word book. So I've been down to Mexico several times, mainly to the peninsula, but also now to the mainland to be a guest scholar with him. Oh my. So, and my, uh, my esposa para siempre is a, is a Tejana Mamacita. So she's, <laughs> she's from uh, Texas and I'm learning everything I can about Mesoamerican culture. And of course, I'm a passionate Catholic that uh, lives in, in Bakersfield where, where the majority of the people are Mexican. We've got more than 50% Mexican. And when you go to the church, mm-hmm. they have one service for English and I don't know, five or six for the Spanish service. So there's tremendous Mexican Spanish culture all around me, which is fascinating and wonderful. And I never thought I would be as connected to uh, Mexico and Mesoamerica as I am and continuously learning so much. I think it also relates to my study of uh, Guadalupana, the Virgen de Guadalupe and understanding yes. the significance yes. of, the, of that. Nana, the Madrecita, yeah, of Ma- course. Yes, yes. Well, we've used up the second one. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> it just fly, it flew. It flew by. <laughs> flew by, yeah. <laughs> See you in the flip-flop, gang. We'll go to the third. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome back, gang. This is uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel with the uh, third segment on the Rock Art Podcast with our blessed... Elena Matorg. She uh, is a renowned scholar and, and someone who has worked uh, hard at studying rock art in the wonderful country of Mexico. So where, do, where, where are you now in your, in your journey, Elena? And uh, what, what do you feel 
you have learned from your studies and where do we take it from here? Well, I've learned that how important it has always been for humans to be communicating with nature and that religion and magic is present in every single rock that we can find. Now I'm living in a small town in Sevilla, in Spain. I am looking for rock art in here. I haven't found any. I'm sure I will at some point. <laughs> but no, I'm, I'm looking forward to translating my PhD thesis into English mm -hmm. and writing articles. And I am dedicated myself to, to study English and to become a, a teacher, an English teacher. So that is what I do right now. But of course, I am always reading about rock art and loving rock art and listening to your podcast, by the way. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> that is wonderful, Elena. I'm, the archaeology so of emotion I'm, I'm so, just touched I'm, my heart. Come on, amazing. I'm so I'm so blessed and honored that we have an <laughs> have an international following. That's yeah. that's just just amazing. I, uh, oh. <laughs> it's 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 terrific. So, if you put your finger on the pulse of what you found out in your most in your PhD studies. Give us some of the key takeaways, some of the most astounding or interesting discoveries that you've made on what the rock art means, how it functions, how it relates to the natural world, what you found most enticing and wonderful about it. Well, aside from its own existence, which is amazing, I found that in Mexico, rock art is everywhere. Everywhere, the, probably the first place that was painted was painted when humans reached uh, the the region. And the last rock art that you can find if you went to Mexico tomorrow will be the one made the day before tomorrow. You know, rock art is present because people have a huge and beautiful relationship with nature that we have lost here in Europe. I, I have to say. Regarding the rock art in Tepoztlán and in the region of Tepoztlán and the, for example, Chacatín or Descalpindado, all those regions, regions, what I think is that it is very important to note that there are many different places. You have local places, small places in which small rituals were probably conducted by farmers, by locals. And we have big places, huge places, which probably had served as ritual, ritual places because you have You can hold a huge crowd of people in there, you know, and the paintings are amazing, stunning, bigger. They contain a scenes instead of just motives or tiny motives. So I think that rock art was a generalized practice forever, I would say, until probably when the Spanish people arrived. And But not I'm not so sure because after the Spanish people arrived, you can find that they have horses and people on horses in the rock art. So they continue painting afterward. So I think that rock art is the result of the communication with the environment, the natural environment, the resignification of places that have water or have a threshold of communicating or possibility of communicating with the underworld. And then you want to paint in there because in Mexico, they thought that Uh, things had the essence or contain it, the essence of the gods. So when you paint something, the god is there, you know? When you make a sculpture, the god is in that sculpture. So you are like trapping or capturing the essence of the gods and putting that essence inside of the thing that you are creating. So when they were painting in places where there is water, oh my God, there is life in there, you know, in the dry period of time, you will find water if you go there. 
or where there are cavities and places of communication with those forces. You paint in there. So you somehow make the God come back to that place. So I believe that from time to time, they will take some offerings in there to the local places and to the monumental ones. The difference between those two will be that in the monumental ones, there will be conducted huge ceremonies. That's my take. Uh, that's what I think. So what you're saying, which is interesting, is that the painting of rock art is in one way also a way of communicating to the deities mm -hmm. to bring them to that place and to help reinstall, reassure, bless the place and the needs of the people that were there. That's precisely, that is precisely yeah. what I think. And that's fascinating. That's, that's a very wonderful and, and emotionally fulfilling way of thinking about these places. It's also much simpler yeah. <laughs> and the way yeah. that the anthropologists. Well, don't you feel the, don't you feel the divine presence? With, yeah, I, of course, of course, <laughs> of course. You, I call I I call it. Uh, you've got the Koso glow. You've got the glow when you're there, and it it sticks with you for a couple of weeks afterwards. When you're yeah. when you're you've got the mojo that hits you when you're there in that place, and it's the same way when you see rock art in many different places, you understand or get a feeling or a sensitivity that you're connected to another world, another place. It, it definitely makes the space special. Yeah, it's an emotional experience. It emotes. And I had, no. I had, I had Dr. Uh, Tirtha, you know, he called those, those two additions as episodes, the emotional, I think he called it emotional archaeology or yeah, the archaeology yeah, of emotions. Of, yeah, of yeah, emotions. Yeah. And, and no one talks about that very much because it's a matter of when you view these images and when you're there in this place, it has a very mm -hmm. spiritual feeling, a spiritual meaning, a fulfillment. There's something very supernatural about being there. Am I correct? Yeah, even for a non-religious person, I am not a religious person. I have never been, uh -huh. but I can't totally recall being on the mountains, for example, for a, for a whole exhausting day looking for rock art or, well, I became a volunteer in search and rescue and firefighting. And even today, for example, we will be fighting a wildfire in the mountains of Tepoztlán. And, you know, the heat and the dust and you couldn't barely breathe, you know, and people wouldn't say, oh, God, help me. They were asking Tlaloc to bring the rain even today, you know. So even people that I know by a fact that they are not religious, as neither am I, that, that is something that will happen every time you will ask for a biggest and a strongest force to help you. It comes at no surprise to me that the rock art was painted in such significant places in which life is present in a magical way because you don't get to understand why in the top of the mountain you can find a source of water, <laughs> clean water, fresh water in the middle of February, which is really hot in there. The, the winds are really dry and everything is on fire. And in April, when you are sweating and then you're super tired that you find that water, you are not even surprised to see rock art surrounding that area. 
For example, there are other walls that are beautiful walls to paint. I love painting. I have my own oils, you know, and mm -hmm. I love paintings. I love painting, oil painting and stuff. But when I saw that walls, the perfect wall to paint and no paint was there, at first I would ask myself, why people, why choosing this horrible place to paint, <laughs> you know, when you could choose this other one? <laughs> people, what is yes. wrong with you? <laughs> Well, I, after after serious consideration, yeah, I realized yeah. that the water was the key. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's not the canvas they're looking for. No. But the, the environmental associations, the life in the place, not... The place is alive. The place is alive. Yeah. Fascinating. And it has the God in it, you know, the God is there. The God is there. Yeah, what makes life able to exist is precisely that, that the God is visiting from time to time. The deities are there. Maybe to have this beautiful canvas, you know, with such amazing scenery or that can be seen from very far away. But you are not interested in that because you, a hundred meters away from that, you have a tiny, tiny hole with horrible, irregular walls, you know, and you choose to paint in there. And that is amazing. That is amazing. <laughs> and that is because there's life there. Yeah, there is life there. The deities are there. They are visiting. Deities are there. Mm -hmm. So you want them to be there. They you want them not to forget that place. So it's a memorable place. And you want to commemorate that visit with the imagery that you emblazon on the walls of the rock art. Yeah, I somehow don't believe that this commemoration is time of invocation. Invocation. You know? Yes, when you paint the signs, symbols, or the motifs that are related to that god, precise god, for example, the face of Tlaloc, mm -hmm. the yeah. moon, the deer, etc., you are telling them, hey, come here, come here. Do not forget this place, okay? Hey, come back. Let's talk. I, I, I will give you offerings. Come on, come back here, you know? Because when you have depicted those images, you are... Yeah. It's an invitation. In my opinion, it is, yeah. I find that to be mm -hmm. fascinating and interesting. Yes. Yeah. So by capturing these images and blazoning them upon the walls of the particular shelter or cave or what have you, you're inviting mm -hmm. those gods and goddesses into that place. You want to have the pa power remain. You want to have the power grow in that place. Yeah. That's my, my, what I propose in my PhD thesis. That's your takeaway. Yeah, that's my, totally my takeaway. Yeah. I, I do believe that because after having been there, you know, sitting, contemplating those places for many, many years, you know, and you sit there, you are, you need water, you are there and you're, oh my God, this is an amazing place because I feel fresh and I feel a, a, a wind in here, you know, I can be refreshed here. It's a special place. It has something special. Maybe it's not the views, maybe it's not the world, but it's something else, you know, that cannot be explained. And of course, water is there and uh, not in every case, but cavities are in there. So either water or cavities are present in there. So either you can communicate because through those cavities, your voice is going to reach the deities that are hidden in the inside of the mountains. <laughs> yes, or, yes. Or, They're or the conduits. Happy because the you have water. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know? Because you've got the cracks in the rocks. Yeah. <laughs> you've, you've got the holes in the rocks or the protuberances or the yes. concavities. They're entrances into the underworld. And uh, in turn, it's the connection between <laughs> the, the natural 
and the supernatural. Yeah, so basically after after 10 years of investigating, I came to the to the conclusion that we are thirsty and we are happy when we see water and we want to celebrate those places. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. So yeah. Well, we, I, I think that's the, I think that's Yeah, the we need to come back to our to ourselves. <laughs> yes. Elena, God bless you. Thanks for sharing your reflections and your wonder and your passion for rock art. See you on the flip-flop gang. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Come.